Well, during Super Bowl 58's halftime show, Grammy award-winning artist Alicia Keys sang uh, a popular song, If I Ain't Got You. Now, I will not sing it for you now because that would end the service quickly. Uh, she's a phenomenal artist. She can, she can sing. Uh, but at one point during her, her performance, her voice cracked. And 123 million viewers who were tuned in at that time heard it. But the next day, whenever the NFL uploaded their official video of the halftime performance, it was gone. It had been dubbed over. It had been edited. It had been tweaked, fixed. And now generations forevermore will wonder, did that actually happen? There's a lot of discussion online about that whole situation and different realities and everything. But the reason I bring it up is, why did they do that? Why did they fix it? What, 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 what's, what is that about human nature that wants to cover up our failures, that wants to hide our flaws, that wants to show that even Grammy award-winning artists can have a moment? where their voice cracks at the time that they would wish it didn't the most, right? Why would they do that? Isn't, isn't that like us, though? Aren't we tempted to hide our imperfections, to hide our weaknesses? I mean, if the Instagram age has taught us every, anything, it is a filter makes it look a little better. A little Photoshop here, a little Photoshop there, and all of a sudden, blemishes are gone, and things are good. I mean, that's what makeups are for, so you can't see your zits. That's why, and I don't know why this, these ads pop up for me, but there's evidently t-shirts that hide your bellies. It's fine, whatever, I don't care. Why? What, what is it? We, we tend to do this, don't we? We want to we gloss over our weakness. We want to hide them. We want to conceal them. We don't want to say, hey, here's all the ways that I do everything wrong. We, and we do this. Think about going to an interview and be like, well, I'd like to lead with the time I messed up the worst. That's not typically how we, how we do it. We put our best foot forward, right? This happens in, in every arena of life, including in the church. Many of you were raised in churches where you just, you don't talk about all the ways that you, you're a big mess up, that you show up at the right time in the right place, you put on the right smile, how are you, better than I deserve, praise be to God, amen, everything's okay, and you just, you know how to do the routine and wear the mask, and it is a mask, hiding reality. Some of y'all did it this morning, you came in here and you just put on the smile when deep down there's, you feel like there's nothing to smile about. Some of you in here have sins that you've just hidden for so long and you haven't confessed them because you're afraid of what people would think. Some of you are bearing burdens in silence because you don't want others to know because you've been perceived a certain way or whatever it may be. The last thing we ever think about doing is boasting in our weakness. Saying, here's how I'm messed up. Here's how I'm broken. Here's how I'm barely hanging on. And what God's Word would tell us this morning is that's actually a really dangerous way to live. That God actually delights in giving you grace in the midst of your weakness. And that actually your weakness becomes a channel for God to give you the strength that you need. This is what we find in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10 where Paul continues his discussion about why the Corinthian church should listen to his true teaching about Jesus rather than all of the super apostles with all of their resumes and all of their experiences and all of their, their pictures with the, the big wigs and all, rather than listen to them, should listen to the gospel truth that he's relaying. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the, the third heaven. 
whether in the body or out of the body, I, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should boast, so though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's word to the Corinthian church some 2,000 years ago and to us this morning is this. Be content with weakness, because Christ is your strength. Be content with your weakness, because Christ is your strength. Learn to boast even in your weakness. So this morning, whatever the weakness is that you brought in here, whether it be circumstantial pain, whether it be abiding sin, whether it be some sort of physical ailment, whatever it may be, God would say to you this morning, Learn to boast in it and to say, God, here, here's my reason that I need you. We're going to unpack this section in, in two smaller sections. Verses 1 through 6, be humble in your experiences. 1 through 6, be humble in your experiences. And 7 through 10, boast in your weaknesses. Be humble in your experiences and boast in your weaknesses. Again, number one here, be humble in your experiences. In these first six verses, Paul recounts an extraordinary spiritual experience that he had. He was called up into heaven and beheld God's presence. Now this comes after chapter 11 where he listed all sorts of other things that he had been through. And this is kind of the, the, the pinnacle of it. So if we were up for a really long sermon last time, we should have gone all the way through verse 10 because the section does that. This is, this is the, the climax or the, the, the pinnacle of his whole point of boasting. And you'll remember that he was boasting in this sense of listing out his, his resume, not because he's trying to brag, not because he wants to impress the Corinthians, but rather he wants to get their attention so that they'll hear his message. Again, verse 1, I, I must go on boasting. He's continuing the strategy that he's not comfortable with back in, in chapter 11, but he feels it's the only way to get through to the Corinthians, because the Corinthians sure seem to have an ear for people who strut in and say, let me tell you about all the amazing things I've done. He goes, well, if that's the only kind of people you're going to listen to, well, let me start telling you about all the things that I've done. And he's going he's gonna to end on this mountaintop experience that he had of, of being called up into to heaven. He says, though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul means that he, he has nothing to gain by boasting. He, he's got nothing to gain in the sense of, of relaying this revelation to them about what happened to him because he's not looking for their applause. He's not looking for their affirmation. He's not trying to get a whole bunch of social media followers or a book deal or invited to some podcast. Like, that's not his goal. I have nothing to, to gain from doing this, he says. That's not what I'm in this for. And, really, Corinthians, you have nothing to gain by it. Meaning, if, you, if me sharing this revelation with you about what happened in my experience makes you impressed with me, then that doesn't help you either. 
Because you being impressed with another human is not the goal. The only one that we should be impressed by is God. This is Paul's whole thing that he's wrestling with here, trying to meet the Corinthians where they are. So he says, I'm going to share it, though, because it has the ultimate purpose of magnifying Jesus. So verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. When they're in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul speaks here about an experience in in the third person. Did you catch how he's doing that? It's kind of strange, right? Verse 2, I know a man. Verse 3, I know this man. Verse 4, he heard these things. But then in verses 5 through 7, it becomes clear that he's, he's talking about his own experience some 14 years earlier. Now, why would he, why would he talk like that? It's kind of strange. I think you can, you can sense his discomfort. So he is, in, he is under the inspiration of the Spirit as he is penning, but he still has his own personal experiences and everything and emotions and all of this that comes through in the text as well. And, and I think he's hesitant because he doesn't want the Corinthians to get starstruck. Ooh, Paul went to heaven, right? Because they tend to be impressed by those kinds of pastors who, who are somebody, who take selfies with celebrities and show all of their VIP boxes and all this kind of stuff. They seem to like that kind of stuff. And he's like, I don't want you to think of me in, in that way. I mean, how much more if Paul got caught up into heaven? Now he's the man. Verse 6, Paul says he desires that no one think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He says, all I want, when you think about me, all I want you to think about is I'm a man in need of grace. I want you to remember all of these ex- experiences, as it were. And this experience, Paul says, I don't even really understand what happened, right? Twice he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. I mean, the Corinthians, kind of like us, would have liked all the juicy t- details, right? Like, oh, come on, Paul, tell us something. What was it like? What did you see? What did you hear? Right? He says, I don't know. I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. Very similar, actually, to what John seems to have experienced in the book of Revelation when he's caught up into to heaven for the visions that God gave him. He says, but the most important thing isn't, isn't all of that. It's rather who was there. <laughs> Paul says he was caught up into the third heaven. Uh, the word for caught up is harpazo. It's, it's the word used to pluck a harp, right? It's, 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 it means to, to pluck. It means to snatch up. It's the word used of when God snatches up the church when Christ returns and takes, him, uh, takes her unto himself as the bride. Heaven, he says here, is the third heaven. Heaven is spoken of throughout Scripture in kind of three ways. You have the heavens where the birds fly. You have the heavens that declare the glory of God, where the stars, the moon, the galaxies, right? And then you have the heavens where God dwells, the third heaven, as it were. Paul's being, he's speaking about that. He got caught up into the very presence of God. He also calls it their paradise. Did you catch that? Now, you, you may remember a time when, when Jesus used that same word, the thief on the cross, right? The, this word paradise shows up actually three times in the New Testament to describe this, this place. The word paradise is interesting. It's a Persian word uh, that, that means an enclosure, often used of a wall around a garden to protect it. You think of the Garden of Eden, a protected garden, right? Think of the new heavens of the new earth where there's a, a garden that has walls around it. Well, here he was caught up. Jesus used this again to the, the thief on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's also used in Revelation chapter 2 by Jesus, speaking a promise to the Ephesian church, saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thief on the cross you're going to go with me today into paradise. Ephesian church, if you persevere and don't give in to idols, before you awaits the tree of life in the paradise of God. And here, Paul gets caught up there, and he's with, he's with God. In that land, that place, that place where all the, the joys that sin stole are restored, 
in a, a new and better garden of Eden, as it were. It's not the final new heavens and new earth, but it's, it's called a paradise. It's a, it's a place where, where sin does not lurk, where temptation is not felt, where sorrow is not, it doesn't threaten, where sickness is not found. But supremely, it's the place that God dwells. It's, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. So a believer dies, body goes into the ground, spirit goes to be with the Lord in paradise. Paul says, I went there. I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. All I know is that 14 years ago, that happened. And while we'd like to know what was, it was like, he relays, the only thing he relays is this. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He says, notice he doesn't talk about what he saw there. He doesn't mention what he saw. He mentions what he heard. It's like the, the voice of God was greater than anything that you might see. He says, repeating what I, what I heard there is, is impossible because I can't capture it and put it into words, and it's illegal. God says it, it must not be uttered. He says, I, I couldn't explain it even if I tried to, and I'm forbidden to. You see that actually in the, in the book of Revelation, there's a section where John hears something and the angel tells him, don't write that one down. That, one, that one's not for everybody. All right. One thing I think it's important to notice here, did you catch that, did you catch, he says, uh, there's nothing to be gained for, uh, verse 2, I know a man in Christ. The only way that anyone could have this sort of experience and make it out alive is that they are in Christ. Christ is the protector of a sinner in the presence of a holy God. That, that's the only way this happens. That's gospel truth. So anybody who says, oh, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person, with all due respect, is delusional. You may be a better person than everybody else in this room, but on the last day, you are not compared to everybody else. We're compared to God Almighty, the holy God in whom there is no, nothing but good goodness and perfection and righteousness. We're compared with him and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a sinner goes into the presence of God, they cry out, woe is me, and are incinerated apart from grace. Which is what the good news of the gospel is, that Jesus comes and gives us his righteousness that we might be able to stand before a holy God and be received as his children. Paul says, in Christ, I, I was there. And one other thing on this, while we don't know what he experienced, we do know that this ex experience, it impacted him. It granted him what you might call an eternal perspective. Earlier in this letter, remember 2 Corinthians 4.17? This light momentary affliction, whatever it is that you're going through, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He knows because he saw it. And this man, when you read chapter 11, all of the hard stuff that he had been through, all of the beatings and torture and lashing, he could listen, it was light and momentary compared to what's coming. The healing balm of glory that awaits God's people will eclipse whatever suffering there has been in this life. It is whatever chunks have been taken out of us, God's grace fills that up and he will heal it and it will become the wells that we will draw praise forevermore to him. So Paul's sharing here that he had an elite spiritual experience. He was raptured into glory, ushered into the very holy of holies in heaven, into God's very presence. He heard and saw things that humans are not permitted to repeat when they return. And while that experience is dear to him, do you notice it's not ultimate for him? Look again, verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but not my... But, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would, not, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul could have gone on a world tour about his experience. And it would have been the, the truth. But again, Paul's goal was not to become popular or to build a platform for his ministry brand. He wasn't trying to get on the Today Show or write a, a bestseller about heaven being for real. Like that's not what he was up, that's not what he was about. 
He's not about the sort of self-promotion that many of the super apostles and their disciples seem to be about. Rather than attempting to carefully craft his appearance to impress people, Paul actually wants to do the exact opposite. He says, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. He says, y'all want to talk about... You want to talk about me? What I want you to talk about is all the ways that I need Jesus. That's when you think about me and my ministry, that's what I want. He doesn't want a photoshopped portrait of of him in their mind. Paul wants them to know all the reasons that he needs the grace of God. That's why he boasts in his weakness, because he knows that it displays Jesus' power. He wants no one to think more of him than he sees in him or hears from him. I love how Dane Ortland uh, explains this. He says, uh, Paul's instincts have been turned inside out by the gospel. While those outside of Christ long to boast in their strength and hold their weaknesses at arm's length or dub them over, Paul longs to boast in his weaknesses and hold his strengths at arm's length. This is a totally different mentality, that rather than walking into church and be like, let me tell you how awesome I am and, and why I'm better than everybody else, it's the, listen, I'm the chief of sinners. Is there grace available here? Because that's, that's, that's what I need. And hopefully we say, oh, get in line. Everybody here needs that grace. Come. Paul doesn't want them to be impressed with him, but with Jesus. Now, He wants them to learn to evaluate the trustworthiness of ministry on what he sees in him and hears from him. So when you're evaluating a ministry, you've got to say, do they tell the truth about Jesus and about our need for for grace, and do they live like Jesus? Not perfectly, but humbly, sacrificially, purely, godly. Paul's laying this out here because he's trying to show them that these these other false teachers are just, they're putting on a prideful show and it's going to lead the Corinthians astray, but he's coming and he's trying to say, I represent Jesus. Be humble in your experiences, Paul would say. I just want to give you three brief words of application on this before we move into the, the next section, which is I think is the heart of his message. First is this, don't chase spiritual experiences. Don't chase spiritual experiences. Paul had the experience of all experiences. The rest of his life is not about, and I kept trying to find a way to get that again. Like, that's not, what he's, that's not how he's pursuing his walk with, with God. Don't be desperate, as it were, for encounters with God. They are not the, the, the foundation or the fuel of your, your faith. Beware of riding the waves of emotional highs and lows of experiences with God, where where you're always seeking experiences at maybe conferences or worship events or retreats or all-night prayer vigils or 40-day, you know, times of fasting. Those things may be helpful. They, they, They may help you in your walk with God. But if you chase those sorts of experiences as kind of the normal diet of your Christian life, You will not be healthy. You will not be spiritually stable. You will not grow in maturity. Because that's not how God's designed the Christian life to work. We walk by faith, not by sight. Right? I remember when I first became a Christian, I came out of the the drug drug culture. and, And I remember there was a guy I was sharing the gospel with, and he had a spiritual experience. And I remember he came in one day, and he's like, oh, man, Jesus, he's amazing. I was like, yeah. And he goes, he's like my new cocaine. I was like, oh. Part, and I didn't, I thought that was wrong. I had no idea why I thought why that was wrong. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was my, he goes, it's like, it's like I, I read and I have this experience with him, and it's so much better, better than any other high than anything I've ever had. And he, he really chased after God like that for, for a, a couple weeks, a couple days, a couple weeks. But it, but it fizzled out. And the reason is because God's not your new cocaine. He's not your new boyfriend. He's not your new girlfriend. He's not your new stock. He's not your new job. He's not your new any of that stuff. He's, 
You can't chase him for some sort of high. That's not how the Christian life works. He's the good shepherd who leads you beside still waters, green pastures, daily manna, small mercies. But you get him and, and the, the daily walk with, with him. And I say this because I just want to assure you that you don't need to chase spiritual experiences to get affirmation that God loves you. Listen, if, if God graces you with a rich devotional time, how many of you have ever had one of those? Well, you, don't have to, you can. Anyway, some of you have had those, just a time where you read the Bible and you're like, that was amazing. And you're crying and you're like, oh, why aren't they all like this? Because they're just not all like that. And if you have one of those, praise God for it. Thank him. If you have one of those mornings where you turn on the, the, the music and you're singing about the Lord and you're overcome with emotion and you just drop to your knees and you're like, praise God, oh, I'm so spiritually sober right now, thank, thank him for that. But the next morning when you try it again and you're like, why is it, I must not, God must, not, must have sinned, you know, like, like, like he doesn't want you unstable like that. God sometimes grants merciful experiences of his presence in a way that we should be thankful for. But it's not the substance of your walk with God. So don't chase these experiences. Secondly, be humbled by your spiritual experiences. Be humbled by your spiritual experiences. I doubt most of us have ever been to heaven. If you have, I would love to talk with you after the service and hear about that. Um, but some of us have had unique encounters with the Lord. Whether it be like some of the stuff I was just describing or whether it be a vision or a dream or some other sort of thing. But the last thing that it should produce, if it's real, is pride. Nobody walks away from an encounter with God and be like, look at me. Like, that's just not how it goes. If you've actually had an encounter with the Almighty, the only right response is humility. It, so, so if you have had unique experiences with the Lord, I just want to encourage you to guard yourself against humble bragging Flexing stories of, of spiritual experiences. Ask God to produce humility, and he will delight in doing it. And thirdly, don't follow spiritual exhibitionists. Don't follow spiritual ex exhibitionists. Meaning, people who are showy to get attention with their spiritual experiences are not trustworthy people. Experiences do not qualify someone to be a Christian leader. History is filled with people who have heard from God and seen God. I watched a video clip of somebody, spent again too much time researching this, but I watched clips last night of people who've met with God and went to heaven because they, they wanted to talk to Jesus and splash with him in the river of life and all this kind of stuff. Don't trust that. Like if people are boasting about that flippantly, it did not happen. It just didn't. Do not be deceived by that. You don't need a spiritual leader who's had that. Paul, this is not Paul's boast. That's why he makes this big deal about, I want to boast of my weakness, but I need you to know this happened because you like resumes, so listen to me. What matters most is, 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 is weakness. And he's, he's dealing with this because the Corinthians, they love the showy ministers. He, they loved them. But he's got so many followers on Instagram, and look how big his church is growing, and all this kind. He's got book deals, and Paul's like, it doesn't matter. Listen to what he says. Watch how he lives. Do you walk away with the aroma of Jesus or the aroma of that person's ministry? Paul says, I hope that if you get one whiff of me, all you smell is weak, covered up by grace. Because that's, that's what I'm about. He says, I've visited heaven, but I've learned not to boast in those experiences, but rather in my weakness. Number two, boast in your weakness. Boast in your weakness. In verses 7 through 10, Paul explains that because of his experience, God did something to keep Paul humble. He gave him a thorn. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul's return from glory brought with it a new itinerary. And this itinerary came with a thorn. The word for thorn, it can mean something as small as a a splinter or like a a thorn that you would get on on a rose bush, all the way up to some sort of huge spike that you would impale someone on as a a form of execution or torture. And the imagery is intended to communicate there's pain here. There's there's something uncomfortable was given to me. It created weakness in me. And when you listen to Paul talk about it, it seems to be more than a mere annoyance, like a little splinter. They count too, but but this, this seems to be trending more some sort of abiding agony that he had in his life. Now, what was the thorn? I don't know. Neither do you, and neither do any of the commentators. There's a lot of suggestions out there. We just don't know. And it's actually probably really helpful that Paul doesn't say, oh, it was this or that, because then we'd be like, oh, look, there it is, that's that's it, and everybody else would be like, oh, I'm left out. Like that's, in this case, there's there's lots of potential things that could fit in here. We don't know. He does say that it was in the flesh, which could mean it was a physical thing, or it could mean it provoked his flesh. We don't, I don't know. But, But more important than what was the thorn is what was, who, who gave it to him and what was the purpose in it? So who gave him the thorn? Well, at first glance, you may think that it was given by Satan. Right? It says, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, Satan is certainly going to be involved here. He mentions him. He, he is going to be, he's going to come in and strike with the thorn. He's going to twist the thorn in, in whatever sinister way he can. And, and, and Satan is going to use whatever this thing is, this thorn in his flesh, to harm Paul and to try, certainly, to harm his faith. So Satan is, Satan is there and he is working. But it's, it's a messenger from God. How do we know? Well, because what's the purpose of the thorn? He says it twice. To produce humility, which is not what Satan would want. It's from the Lord. The Lord has given it, and Satan is working in the midst of it. How does all that work together? There's mystery here, but consider the way that God permitted Satan to afflict Job. Right? Satan came, and he accused Job of only serving God because why? Of course he worships you. He's had a silver spoon in his mouth his whole life. Everything he touches turns to gold. You've, you've done nothing but, but bless him and make him happy. So God permitted Satan to afflict Job. Job 1.12, Behold, all that Job has is in your hand. Only do not stretch out your hand and take his life. So though God allowed Satan to attack Job, and Satan did. He brought storms and sores and terrorists and death. Job was under no illusion that Satan ran the universe. Job knew full well that God was sovereign over his suffering. That's why he said, Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. As Augustine wisely uh, pointed out, Job did not say the Lord gave and the devil took away. To be very clear, God never does evil. He only ever does good. He is good and he does good always. But that good can and does include him sovereignly using the evil afflictions of wicked people and the wicked entity of Satan and his minions who wants to destroy faith. God can and does use those things to build and strengthen faith. The things that happened to Joseph in Genesis were not good. But God orchestrated them all together. You intended it for evil, Joseph said, but God meant it for good. There's one truth you need to know in this life. It's this, that nothing comes into our lives that does not first pass through the hands of a good God who loves his children and intends to work it for good. There's not one thing that's ever come into your life. 
that God has been like, oh no. Now, some of you have suffered very hard things. In hearing that, you say, well, then how? Hang with me for a moment. Paul knew that God allowed the thorn for a gracious purpose in his life. Twice, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited. The thorn came from God, but not not to hurt Paul, not to harm Paul, but to help Paul by humbling him. You see, see, God loved Paul enough to entrust him with a weakness-creating reality in his life to guard him from being proud. Now, right here, again, listen, I've been through some stuff, many of you have been through some stuff, and, and our flesh is often tempted right here to hear that as then God must be cruel. You're telling me that thing happened because God wants to keep me humble and I'm supposed to be thankful for that? First thing I want to say is that you are free to wrestle with the Lord openly and honestly about those things. When you read through the Psalms, you're going to see really clearly that that sort of language is used by God's people in the midst of suffering. Suffering is terribly disorienting. Evil done to you is terribly disorienting. Hardships in this life that lead to to funerals and to all the other sort of hard things, it is difficult. And the Lord knows. I just want you to know, God does not, faith in God is not just like, well, I'm just going to trust God. Yes, trust God, but you do it through tears. You do it through crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's in the Bible. I just want you to know that God knows and he hears and he sees. He is not cruel. Paul knows, though, that there is, there is, there is a danger that lurks in him and in all of us, and it is, it is pride. Spiritual pride is the most dangerous thing for any soul because it's, it's, it's spiritual drunkenness. If you've ever been around somebody who's drunk, or if you've ever been drunk, which you should not, but if you do, like, you, you, what it does is it distorts reality. You don't, you don't see things rightly. You don't see yourself rightly. You don't see others rightly. You don't see reality rightly. Pride is spiritual intoxication that, that makes you drunk to, to who, you don't understand who God is, who you are, who others are. And it, if you follow that and follow your heart and lead you follow your own wisdom, it does lead to destruction. I mean, I mean think about Rehoboam, right? Second Chronicles 12.1. When Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Or Uzziah. When Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Or Peter. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Well intended, but brothers and sisters, we must beware of of pride. Listen, wherever you're strong, there you're vulnerable to pride. And there's nothing more dangerous than that. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Because pride tempts us to be self-centered, us-centered at the expense of being God-centered and others-centered. Pride says, look at me, listen to me, applaud me. One of the things I'd encourage you to be thinking about today and talking about with others is how are you tempted toward pride? For some of you, it's your, your intellect. You know you're smarter than everybody else, so you can crush your spouse and your children, and your co-workers, and all the idiots on the internet with your intellect, right? Some of you, it's, it's your money. You, you've never had to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Like, you don't even know what that prayer means. 
is not necessarily safe. Again, I'm not trying to shame you if you have resources. I'm just saying be aware that there's, there's a temptation that comes with that. Maybe some of you are gifted. I, couldn't, I could not speak publicly before I got saved, and now I have no problem like putting together a sermon by God's grace. I, I, can, I could, and I mean this, I'm just, I don't know how to say this without sounding prideful because it is prideful. I could open the Bible and explain what it means without a lot of study because I've studied and all this kind of stuff. That's why for me, like I have a timer set every 10 minutes during sermon prep to remind me to pray because I'm proud. Like I have to do that. Some of you are wildly gifted in other stuff. It, 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 it can be dangerous. Some of you are, are so gifted in theology, but you pick up the Bible so you can beat people with it to show your superiority. Some of you have personalities that are so likable that you can just navigate any situation and just kind of always get out of it. That's not necessarily safe. Some of you are, are very attractive. That like you can walk into a room and people will give stuff to you or whatever it may be. It's, it could be dangerous. Some of you have suffered much and it can, be, it can become a source of pride where there can be an entitlement, a victimization. People, people should cater to me and then there's a bitterness that can grow out of resentment. I just think it's important for us to examine what are, what are ways that we're susceptible. Now, I want to be very clear that not every difficulty that comes into our lives is the Lord's discipline for pride. So some of you who have been through some really hard stuff, you hear that like, oh, so God did that because I was prideful? It's like, where's the pride that I want it to be gone? It's a good impulse to want pride to be gone, but it does not mean, just because there's been hard stuff or a thorn has been given, it doesn't mean it's because you have sinned. It may actually be part of God's grace to keep you from sinning. It, it may be something that God is using to where when we, not it would be hard in this life, but when we get to glory and we see all things as God sees them, I suspect that we will thank God for many of the hardships that in this life tempted us to curse him. Because we will see what it made us do and draw near to him in ways that we may not have. Thorns make us pray. And as Spurgeon would say, anything is a blessing that makes us pray. That's what Paul did with the thorn. He prayed. Verse 8, I pleaded three times with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So notice here, Paul did not like the thorn. He's not like, oh, hey, praise the Lord for the thorn. Give me more. Like, that's not how, he, that's not how it went. He didn't like it. He didn't want it. He didn't desire the thorn. He pleaded with God to remove it. So hear this. If there's hard stuff in your life, it is good and right to take it to God and say, God, take this away. That is good and right and godly. That's not lacking faith. That's not like, oh, well, then I don't, must not want to be humble if I ask. No. Follow the example of the apostle. Because in his mind, removing the thorn would have been best for him. So listen, when, when, when trouble comes... Take it to Jesus. When trouble comes, take it to Jesus. Bring it to him, plead with him to handle it, and he will either graciously take away the thorn or he will graciously give you himself. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Plead with God to make those the sweetest words. That more than relief, more than relief from your suffering, that you would get him. Jesus says, I see you. I hear you. I know your pain. And to prove to you that I'm not apathetic to it, I'm going to come among you and I'm going to endure every sort of evil that you can imagine and me who knew no sin will become sin in your place. I will suffer and I will experience all of it to show you that it matters. He's a, he's a God who draws near in suffering. But what we need more than anything else is grace. 
Grace is the strengthening help that God gives to us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what grace is. It's the strengthening help that God gives to us to help us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. It begins with conversion when we are dead in our trespasses and sins and the grace of God comes in, shows us the beauty of Jesus, makes us alive and justifies us and gives us a right standing with God. And then grace is given for every step in our sanctification and becoming like Jesus until we see him face to face. God tells Paul, your weakness is a channel through which grace flows to supply strength for you to keep going and keep trusting and keep obeying and keep hoping. Paul, what you need more than pain to go away is for my, my presence to come near. You see, weakness alerts us to our need for grace. It dispels pride because pride cannot abide when you are face to face with God Almighty saying, help me, I need grace. Pride goes away. And and notice here, Paul does not see God's answer to him, Jesus' answer to him as a subpar answer to prayer. He doesn't say, therefore, I guess I got to suck it up and get some grace. Settle for, for that. No. He sees as an opportunity, a pathway to more grace. Therefore, he says, verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then, then I'm strong. Paul knows that what he needs more than anything else is is grace. Grace, the grace of God in the presence of Christ is better than any relief of any suffering that we could ever get in this life. God, listen, God does not send grace FedEx. He hand delivers it. He comes down and he gives it. He He speaks it to Paul. My grace sufficient for you. This word this morning, if you are here, it's intended to be God's reminder to you that he has grace for you, for me, and whatever it is that we're enduring. He hand delivers it by his spirit through his word. Do you notice here? The only contribution that we bring is our weakness, our need. So what is the thorn, as it were, that weakens you? How are you left exposed and needy before a good and gracious God? What is it? I want to encourage you to to talk about this with God and with others. I don't think you need to tell everybody, but somebody needs to know how you're weak and the neediness that you have for grace. Allow, remember, pain will always push you. It will either push you away from God, which is what Satan wants, Or it will push you toward God, which is what God intends. For some of you, it's physical ailments. Some of you have sicknesses and diseases and conditions that rack your body with pain and discomfort and fatigue that limit you in a way that is deeply discouraging and debilitating. It feels like it robs you of joy and peace. Pray for God to take it away, but pray for grace. Some of you have emotional ailments where there's dark clouds of despair that seem to gather and never break. Maybe disorienting anxieties, maybe thoughts of of even harming yourself. The weakness that is there is an opportunity to lean upon God for grace. He will not shun you when you are weak. He will not put you in the corner. He will draw you unto himself. He is a good shepherd. For some of you, it's sinful temptations. It's a thorn in the flesh. There's abiding temptations of lust or anger or pride or substance abuse or or, or gambling or anger or whatever it may be, and it feels inescapable. God promises a way out, but but one of the things that, I I think I got this from John Owen. I'm going to get, John Owen gave me a lot of good stuff. I'll say it's from John Owen. This is kind of a, a remix of it. If God took away this temptation, 
would he ever hear from you in prayer? I remember there was a season where there was, there was particular temptations. We just, I felt like I just, I'd give anything for it to stop. And this, this idea of, what if God took that away? Would you, would you ever seek him for anything else? Maybe God allows a temptation to abide to keep you seeking his face. Maybe it's a circumstantial crisis. Maybe you've been laid off at your job or unjustly fired or swindled out of money. Maybe your car or house repairs have racked up some sort of insurmountable debt. There's grace. Maybe it's persecution. Paul certainly endured that. Just remember, Satan wants all of these to push you away from God, but God graciously uses these thorns to drive us to our knees before him and set our face before him so he can give grace. God gives more grace, James says. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Satan wants to harass you in your pain. He wants to push you away from God. God says, draw near. Delray Baptist Church, visitors, don't cover up your weaknesses. Bring them before God and boast and say, I need you. Lock arms with another believer and say, would you prop me up as I pray? I need help here. Don't grow calloused in your weakness, but pray for contentment as Paul has here. And as you, as you go back time and time and time and time and time and time again pleading for grace, you'll find that you are changed in the midst of it because your eyes are on him. Second Corinthians tells us that's how we're changed. With unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Weaknesses, thorns, push us to him. Some of you feel like you don't even have the strength to look up, lock arms, lift each other's eyes. I want to say our family's been through some, some hard stuff in recent months. I just want to say so many of you helped us stay propped up by sending us verses and songs and different things. And the Lord used that to lift eyes, to get grace. He gives it always. That is the way to persevere in faith. And that is the way home. Dory Baptist, we're almost home. Don't allow the thorns to drive you to become bitter with God. It's hard, but he is faithful and he will give you himself. Let's seek him.